I got into a conversation with a man over in India outside of a Hindu temple. And occasionally I have different conversations and different topics. And this conversation was a little bit unusual because he immediately started talking about spiritual things and was rather aggressive in doing so. And so he began to try to convince me that my truth is my truth, his truth is his truth, and that it was okay that all paths lead to God. And so since he was rather insistent on this and actually kind of agitated, I just kind of let it sit there for a couple minutes, and then I said, well, that's what the Hindus believe. And just kind of dropped that uh, upon him for him to think about a little bit. And then we talked about some other things. And then we, the conversation got back around to spiritual things. And I had access to a New Testament in his language. And so I asked him, I said, would you like a New Testament, a Bible in your language? And he said, I have a Bible. It turned out that he had spent six years in a Christian school but had not responded to the gospel and obviously did not really understand his need to embrace Jesus as Savior. What I did not tell him was that many people in America had the same viewpoint that he does, that all truth is relative, that it's your interpretation and your feelings, and that's your truth, and I have my truth, but you know the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. The Bible says that God gives us truth and that truth is not relative, but truth is absolute, that God gives us truth that we can understand and apply, apply to our lives. And so that's what the passage in John 5 helps us to understand this morning is God's truth about who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis, author of Mere Christianity, talks about how many people say that Jesus was just a good man, just a prophet. And he says, that's not going to work. He says, when you look at what the Bible teaches about Jesus, you have to either come to the conclusion that Jesus was foolish that he just said crazy things like being God, come in the flesh. That, that he was either a fool or that he was trying to deceive people, that he was a fake. Or you have to come to the conclusion that he is Lord and God. And C.S. Lewis says, we need to make a choice. Quote, you can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus? This is the most essential question that every one of us needs to answer. Who is Jesus? This is a part of what we're focusing on here in this series on the Gospel of John. We're also asking the question, what does he want of us? How does he want us to respond? What does he want from my life? And we've been 
using devotional guides that are available to you on the table as an opportunity to study on our own as well as listening to the messages on Sunday mornings. If you don't have a devotional guide, there's still some left. You can still jump in and get a lot out of what you're learning and able to grow through. And so pick one of those up if you haven't done so yet. Everybody from middle schoolers on up through adults should be able to benefit from those. And we'd love to have you join us in that study. You could also jump into a small group. We still got small group openings. Just talk with me. I'd love to help you you be able to do that as well as we continue to search and understand more of who Jesus is and what he wants in our lives. So John 5 is where we're at. And John 5 is a courtroom drama, a crime scene investigation. And so Jesus brings several witnesses forth. And the primary witness is Jesus himself. And so that's what this message is about in verses 1 through 29 is Jesus' own testimony. There'll be other testimonies at the end of John 5, but we're just going to focus on the first 29 verses. And the primary point this morning is that the testimony that Jesus gives about who he is is to become our testimony. The testimony that Jesus gives about his life and what it means for us is to become the life that we live. Let's begin with verses 1 through 9, and where we find a miraculous healing that Jesus performed. Follow along in your Bible if you have one, or your electronic device, or you can follow up on the PowerPoint. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. A few years ago when I was on sabbatical, I went over to Israel and I had opportunity to go to the Bethesda pool. And this is a place where they have done archaeological digs and they found this pool. Now, a little background on this. This episode is only found in John's Gospel. You know, John helps us to understand what Jesus said, what he did. He adds to some of the things that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So because this episode is only found in John's gospel, people who doubt the Bible used to say, there's no five porticos, there's no five-sided pool. And then they began to dig. You know what they found? They found the Bethesda pool. Five sides. Five porticos. And it's there. So we can trust God's word. We know that what God's word says is true. But you notice some people will also doubt uh, God's word because verse 4 is gone. Take a look at the text. No verse 4. What are we going to do about that? Don't, don't doubt God's word. Actually, this should bolster your faith. Verse 4 is not there because we have manuscripts, written copies of the New Testament, and in the best manuscripts, verse 4 is not there. 
I could tell you academically how it was probably added at a later time and what that means. But it should bolster your faith because we have really smart people who trust in God's Word, who study these kinds of things, and they actually take note of what is God's Word, and they give us evidence for the reality, the trustworthiness of the manuscripts. They do research, incredible research, and it's just nice to know. That's one of the things I found as I was pursuing my doctorate was, man, there are people that are really smart that have done so much research on these kinds of issues. So don't let that cause you to doubt. Like I say, talk to me later if you want to know more academically about why that probably is not part of the original text. But there's plenty of text here for us to study, so let's move along to verse 5 through 9. One who had been there as an invalid for 38 years, Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, we're not told exactly why Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Maybe it was because he'd been lying there for so long and had just developed a mindset where he'd given up and could not conceive of anything different. I think a part of what he was doing, Jesus was causing him to really be thinking about who Jesus is rather than trying to get ahead of everybody else down in the pool because he comes up with this excuse that, well, I can't make it fast. I'm not fast enough to get down in the pool. And I think Jesus was saying, hey, there's something better here, someone better here than just trying to do this on your own, and that's me. I think that's why he asked him this question, just to get him thinking. Like God will do in our lives, things happen. People say things from God's word, and then we begin to cogitate on those things and think about them, and then we apply some of those things later. John 10, John 5, verses 10 through 15, we see a group of religious Jews who begin to confront this man because he's walking around carrying a mat and the religious Jews had developed some ideas about the Sabbath that were not necessarily a part of God's Word, but had become traditions. And one of those traditions was they had a certain amount of weight that you could carry around and you weren't supposed to be carrying a mat around. I mean, this guy apparently was excited enough. Jesus told him, pick up your mat, so he picked up his mat. And so they confront this man and say, what are you doing? What's going on here? And then later Jesus finds this man, and in verse 14, he says, he found him at the temple said to him, see you're well again. Then Jesus says something unusual to him. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now we're not told the details on why he says this to him. Apparently there was some connection between his sin and his paralysis. 
Part of what I think Jesus is saying here is that when God does something amazing in your life, don't go back to the same mindset that you had before. Don't go back to the same dysfunctional patterns that got you there. When God does a miracle in your life, don't go backwards. And I think he's calling this man to real repentance, to a real heartfelt response to the work that he'd done in his life. Like I say, I think there's a lesson here for us that embrace what God has done. Respond to him. Don't fall back into those old patterns. Verses 16 through 20 are significant for us because they are some of the most potent theological truths for us that will help us to respond to people who question the divinity of Jesus. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. So we see this brief interaction between Jesus and these religious Jews. They accuse him of a second crime beyond healing on the Sabbath. Now they accuse him of their major crime in their eyes of equating himself with God. What is significant here is that Jesus did not back off, did he? He did not retreat. He knew his identity. He knew what he was doing. He was proclaiming himself as God come in the flesh. He embraces it. He builds on it. And here's some theology that you can grab onto when the Jehovah Witness knocks on your door and begins to question whether God can be both Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus clearly says in this passage, that God the Father, Jesus the Son, that they are one. They are harmonious. They have a relationship of harmony and unity. Father and Son are one and yet separate in person. And if your brain can't handle that, I'm sorry. We're just puny little humans. And God is God. And there are things that the Bible claims as true and the best we can do sometimes is say, that's what, that's what God's Word says. I don't completely understand it. I could give you some analogies. We're not going to spend time on those analogies, but there are analogies we can use to understand this better, but in the end, God is God and we're not. Now, verse 17 is a significant verse for us at New Hope. We've really called upon this verse to learn how to respond to God down through the years. But again, let's take a little bit of the context here to understand this. First of all, notice the wording Jesus uses. He says, my father, not our father. 
He is our Father. But in this case, Jesus is highlighting the unique relationship that he has with God the Father. Furthermore, Jesus is identifying where he says, I'm working and God the Father is working. He's calling upon some truth that they would have known. It's a little bit obscure for us, so let me explain a bit. So the Jewish people, they knew as they read through Genesis that it says that God rested on the seventh day. And yet they knew that the world is also sustained, that God provides air to breathe and food to eat and sun shining upon us, that God is both resting and working. That is, he created, he create, he's resting from that creational work, and yet he continues to work in sustaining the universe. And so what Jesus is saying here is that God the Father is working, I'm working in this healing. And for the original reader, the original listener to what Jesus is saying, it would have been very clear that Jesus is equating himself as God. See, that's the kind of thing Jehovah's Witnesses won't tell you, is this is the background, the context of what Jesus is saying. It's a strong statement of his equality with God. So here's an application for us. God's at work. How are you responding to his work? This is part of the application, like I said, that at New Hope we've tried to apply down through the years is recognizing that it's not our work. It's not my work, your work. It's God's work. And are we willing to respond to what God is doing? Are we trying to recognize what God is doing in other people's lives, in the life of our community, in the life and work of God around the world? Are we joining God in the work that he is doing. It's his work. We're responding to him. We're, we're joining him, in a sense, in his work. Not in the same way that Jesus was, but we're responding to what God is doing first and foremost. Not creating the work ourselves. The passage goes on and says in verse 21 that Jesus gives life. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life, life to whom he is pleased to give it. So Jesus also has the same power over the dead. In fact, in John 11, you remember that Lazarus is raised from the dead. And Jesus is saying, God the Father has power over death. I have power over death. The power of life. Life. Pretty important. We have lots of people that try to tell us every day where to find life. I saw a commercial for a casino that, was, that is out in Nevada. And it says this. Let me get this right. It says, come to life. Really? At a casino? I suppose when people hit it big, I think, oh, that's life. And we got all sorts of false advertise, advertisements that come at us all the time, don't we? Promising life, promising excitement, promising fulfillment. 
Some people try to find fulfillment in a bottle to the point of intoxication. Some people try to find fulfillment in meth or heroin. Some people try to find life in uninhibited sexual pleasure. Some people try to find life in spending. Some people try to find life in stomping others down. Some people try to find life in taking advantage of others. The human heart is corrupt, is sinful, is seeking life. And so we can end up trying to find life in all the wrong kinds of ways that only lead to a dead end. And Jesus says in John 10.10, he says the thief, referring to Satan, comes to steal life, comes to kill life, comes to destroy life. But he says, but I have come that you might have life, real life, and have it abundantly. And so, friends, do you have that life? Are you living that life? Do you know that life? This is the life that Jesus offers that is real life, is true life. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus says that he's the judge. Sometimes people are concerned about judgment. Sometimes they're not. Now, those who are concerned about judgment, I got good news. It's the people that are not concerned about judgment that I'm concerned about. So, if you're here this morning and you're thinking about this, that's good. It's a good thing. He says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In the Old Testament, there's a story in the book of Daniel about a king named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar has a weird thing that happens where there's a hand that appears out of nowhere. And there's writing on the wall. And the writing says, Belshazzar, you've been weighed on a scale and found wanting. Now, fact is that in ourselves, we try to create life ourselves, come up with our own version of life. We're wanting. All of us are in the same boat. But if we go to the source of real life, where life is really found, then we do find life. We're not left wanting. Jesus is the judge. There is a judge of all of life. Jesus is the judge. And we're invited to examine ourselves, examine our lives, and ask, am I right with the king of the universe? And ask ourselves every day as we examine our lives, what am I doing? How am I living? What is worth living? How am I making my decisions about what is right, what is wrong, about what is true, what is false? Jesus is the judge. And 
That can be frightening, and yet now he gives us the good news. He's also the judge who is the bridge to eternal life. Very truly, I tell you, or truly, truly, some versions have, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. He says, first of all, we start by listening. That is, hearing what God's word says. Then as we hear, we respond, we believe. And to believe is to trust. It's not just a transaction that happens in your mind. It's a trusting of decision of our whole life to entrust ourselves to the only one who can bring us life and carry us through life. To believe is to trust every day, is to rely upon Jesus and his power and his life every day. I first heard God's word over 40 years ago. I had a friend that had died in an automobile accident. And like these things do when they shake us up, they cause us to search. And so I began to search for the meaning of life, began to ask questions about whether there is life after death. And I heard Billy Graham preaching on television, and for the first time I heard God's word. I heard the good news of what it meant that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins, that he rose to life. And it kind of moved me, but I wasn't ready yet. And so for five years, I continued to wander, trying to figure things out on my own, and got into the party scene for a while, searched for relationships that would bring fulfillment, Try to find fulfillment in life, in success, being a good student, all those kinds of things. And then I began to study through the Gospel of John with a friend of mine who invited me to be in a Bible study. And I came across some of these truths where Jesus says that there is life, that there is a bridge to eternal life. And That was when I responded to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus available to every one of us who are here this morning. And some of us, many of us who are here, know that when we trust in Jesus, there's going to be be life disappointments that still happen. There are going to be joys and sorrows, hills and valleys that we go through. People that let us down, situations that are crushing at times. But through every one of those, Jesus will not let you down. I I can say, I can give testimony. My life and many of us can give testimony that through all those various routes that we go through, things that happen, there's one who is faithful to us every second, every day. Life available to all of us. Jesus is the judge, but he's also the advocate. He's also the lawyer. That even though the judge says, guilty because of sin, Jesus says, I'm the advocate who's died and paid the price for your sin. I'm the one who is the lawyer advocate for you. And the judge says, the price has been paid. The penalty has been paid. You're free 
Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you feel condemnation coming, say, no, Jesus is my advocate. Because that's one of those things that all of us go through and have to deal with as well is what do we do when we know Jesus is our Savior and we're trying to sort out, okay, I messed up here. Can I return to him? Yes. Again, again, and again. He says, come. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says in verses 25 through 30, Jesus says he'll raise the dead. You can read that section on your own. Essentially, he says that he, again, he has the same power that God the Father has, the resurrection life, to raise the dead. Three facts are clear in this section. He says there will definitely be life after death. He says that every person is affected by it and that the end result is one of two conclusions. That either we have life in heaven forgiven of our sins, eternal life with God, or we have a hell with Satan. That's awful beyond what we can imagine. So live the life, respond to the life, that Jesus offers you. In some ways, it's as simple as that. Like I said, this passage in John 5 is like a courtroom drama, and we've heard the testimony of Jesus about who he is, what he's done, what he offers to every one of us, to you today. In your devotions this week, you can reflect and meditate back on these first 29 verses and then see some other witnesses that are brought forth to give evidence of the reality of who Jesus is, including God the Father's testimony, John the Baptist who testifies, Jesus' works that testify who he is, the scriptures that testify who he is. So who is Jesus? He is God Come in the flesh. He's our life. He is the judge of all humanity, but he offers eternal life to all who trust in him. How does he want us to respond? He wants you to respond right now and tomorrow, the next day, the next day, by trusting in him, by hearing his word, listening to him, learning more of what he wants for your life, to follow him, to love him, to serve him, more of understanding what it is he wants you to do, more of understanding how to have a relationship with him, how to have loving relationships with other people. He wants you to choose life and live your best life in Him. What could be better than that? Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be together as the people of God, to encourage one another, to hear your word and respond to it. Help us to understand a little bit more today of what that means to take the next step forward and the next step forward 
to encourage one another, to be followers of yours, to love you more, to respond to you, and to follow you. Help us to understand more of who you are and then to live that life out this week in the real places we live, in marriages, in families, in school, in work. Help us to call upon your power in our moments of weakness, in our trials, in times where we are persecuted, in times where we have things that anger us, in times when we're sorrow, when we're in sorrow. Jesus, you are our hope, our life, our help, our refuge, our strength. Just uh, Spirit of God, um, break in upon my friends here this week. Just whisper to them of your love and your life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Tom, if you will, let's stand and let's close in song today. And we're going to sing King of Kings. Um, it's kind of a newer song, but. Just a great song for lifting Jesus up and uh, just celebrating who he is. So let's close in song together. In the darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt sing this out kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost to redeem the whole creation you did not despise the cross for even in your suffering you sought to the other side knowing this was our salvation Jesus for our sake you died
till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of all shall not kneel, shall not faint. By its blood.